The Three O'Clock Gallery is a vehicle for conversation fueled by installations, visual art, and creative narrative. The gallery showcases artworks that explore critical issues within society and sits comfortably on the upper level of Southgate, along South Bank. I'm here at RMIT University with former RMIT student and exhibition manager and curator of A Girl's Place, Kim DeKretzer, where she'll be speaking with alumni artist and PhD candidate Claire McCracken. Together, they will be discussing the exhibition, its themes of gender inequality, and their up-and-coming projects. Okay, the Three O'Clock program is a visual arts program. Uh, it works with artists in public space to talk about socially engaged issues and environmental issues. And it's done across sort of three different platforms. We work with the artists in the public space to attract attention and create awareness around a social issue. And then we bring people into the gallery um, where we talk about the issue and the topic in more detail through the art, but also through some text-based work. Um, and then we run a series of conversation um, conversation series of talks, seminar talks at lunchtime where we do 20-minute talks and people bring down their lunch and we have these intimate conversations where we invite the audience to become part of that conversation. And we run panel nights at night where we invite people down um, and we run we bring in people that understand that topic from not-for-profits to the artists to um, activists working in the area and then discuss those topics and um, and reach out to the audience for questions. So we involve the audiences through through the art and then we take that opportunity to critique the topic in greater detail. And that's what the program's all about, creating conversations through art. Um, what motivated me to create the um, gallery program uh, was a previous program that I ran called Art for a Cause and what we did with that program was that we put artists into public space once again and it's semi-public space um, so spaces that are privately owned but publicly accessible so not your sort of run-of-the-mill um, public space in the middle of the city but usually corporate spaces um, and we teamed the artists up with those causes to raise awareness around the causes and we got such incredible feedback from running that program that I realised then that there was an incredible audience of people in these buildings that weren't being accessed and didn't have access to art and, and these topics and it gave them an opportunity to engage during their daily living out of their lives, going to work, coming back from work, um, being able to stop by at lunchtime, being able to pop by before they go home at night. So we were able to get artists um, and work with artists to then um, reinvigorate those spaces. We work with the artists in different ways. Uh, at the three o'clock program we have an artist in residency program so we work with four artists at the moment who practice out the back in a studio that we have attached to the gallery and they also then exhibit or have the opportunity to exhibit with every exhibition that we run and, um, and then of course we invite other artists in to work within the space and we give them a topic to work with and then each month we run a different exhibition. So it's, it's a wonderful program um, to um, help emerging artists reach out to new audiences and to help new audiences understand emerging art. We encourage people to come and have a discussion with us. So we, when we, we're always in there, um, so when people come through, we can talk to them about the topics and we can find out what their viewpoints are because there's obviously so many different viewpoints in these topics, social topics that we're discussing. You know, quite often we're talking about women or diversity or oceans um, and people... You know, people have different views on the environment, different views on you know, refugees and different views on women and gender. And so we're all about 
canvassing those discussions and looking and exploring those topics. And that's why the space is really unusual because it gives it's it's in this you know privately owned space, but allowing people to have a public discussion and conversation. Um, we began the current exhibition, or the exhibition that we've just finished, um, was called A Girl's Place, and it was run with Plan International Australia. We became involved with Plan. Um, they had been previously involved in the Art for a Cause program, and I was speaking to them about what they were um, looking into for the year ahead, and one of the topics that they had, they had received all this data um, that they had done with 15 to 19-year-old girls on their view of gender equality as they were coming in um, to womanhood and how they felt, um, and this was with Australian girls, 15 to 19. So we took, we they said the data was very complicated but quite startling and challenging. So we we asked them if we could take that data and give that data to our artists to then talk about the, the information that had been captured through it um, publicly in a way that would engage um, the public in a discussion and would simplify the data um, so that that people could see the, you know, rather than having to wad through lots of pages of information, they could see right on the face of it what, what the results were and what the issues were moving forward and how could we, and get into a discussion about how we could then start to move that conversation. I'm sitting here with Claire McCracken. Claire, what was your initial reaction to the data reflected by the Plan International survey that I um, provided you with to create some work around for the gallery program? Um, so the, the data predominantly looked at um, young women's perception of safety online, but also in Melbourne's public spaces. Um, and I wish I could say that the data was surprising because what came back is that a significant proportion of young women were actually limiting their mobility within um, our urban spaces um, because of a sense, um, because they sensed that those spaces were unsafe for them. So it was a perception of safety. Um, I am familiar with this data coming out of particularly local government in the past. However, um, this is the first time I've seen it actually publicly accessible and it was fantastic to see Plan actually release that to me the media and that it made the front page of The Age. Um, so I guess my reaction was... Uh, Again, <laughs> women uh, women continue to feel unsafe in our cities and as a consequence continue to um, change the way they use our city and to limit the way they access the city. Fantastic. And so when you took that data um, and obviously how did you um, implement the data to reflect your own attitudes and perceptions um, in your artwork? Um, well, interestingly, um, whenever I see this data, it's quite contrary to my own experience of Melbourne. And I, I grew up in a little country town and I had to drive everywhere. So the moment I hit Melbourne, all have ever done is use public transport and walk. And I, I absolutely love how accessible the whole city is to me. And, um, you know, I, I have walked at five o'clock in the morning. I've walked at... 2am I've walked at noon and I've really never felt unsafe so I am always very surprised when I look at this data because my own mobility isn't limited. Um, so I guess in thinking about why women may may not feel safe I started to think about how we brand our city and how that may in some way send messages to women that they're not necessarily welcome or not even not welcome but that they are not a part of the city mm. and so I started that process with thinking about all of the major streets street names in um, the CBD and of course we have Queen Elizabeth but that's a fairly mm. difficult um, 
female figurehead for the average Australian woman to identify with. There's definitely the odd laneway um, around the QV building. There's a couple of females linked to the hospital. Um, there's also um, a couple of other laneways. But there's really no major road named after a significant female in the CBD, which means that women aren't linked to the important history of our city. Mm. We're not embedded in it. And then I started to think about the monuments in the city as well. And I know that Melbourne City Council is really conscious of the lack of monuments um, about women, but also diverse people. And, um, I, and a couple of years ago, they commissioned the Women's Suffrage Monument as a mm. way of shifting that dynamic a little bit. So my approach was to continue along those lines and create a series of faux monuments, um, which were short narratives about women and their thoughts, their anxieties, their dreams and the, the way they place themselves in the city. So the everyday narratives, not just the big monumental discussion. Absolutely. It was all about the everyday narrative because I think if you're going to make women feel welcome and feel like they're part of the city, those grand narratives are actually not necessarily helpful. Right, exactly. And, where, and what, what did, you, did you... Did you take the monuments out? Did you photograph them? How did you then take those monuments and put them into the gallery space? Um, in the end, I had thought that I might do a little bit of guerrilla monumenting and walk around the city and document them. Um, but in the end, I decided to create a kind of dream seeker collage um, so it, it was like a it was like an insight into a future city that has these narratives absolutely embedded as part of it mm-hmm. um, so uh, but you know I now have these beautiful little bronze plaques so who knows what happens next mm. perhaps uh, perhaps they do a bit find of a way to really <laughs> find themselves eventually embedded in the city yeah. um, so what was the most challenging aspect of producing the work in response to um, this issue um, with the, especially with the media yeah yeah well I, I mean I think that the most challenging thing is actually not to perpetuate the perception mm. of um, insecurity it's a really fine line you have to as an artist you have to find a way to discuss discuss the issue without furthering the idea that women are in any way vulnerable um, and you know when you read the literature um, there's, there's so many it's a, such a complex series of reasons that women feel unsafe in the cities but fundamentally it kind of goes back to that core of the way we're brought up mm. and you know we're brought up many women you know and and actually I, I was not brought up like this and perhaps that explains why I feel so safe in the CBD but many women are brought up and told that they're vulnerable yeah. your brother can stay out till 10 p.m but because you're a girl you must come back at 8pm, for example. And so this, um, this concept that, you know, as soon as they're in public space, they're at risk of um, stranger danger mm. um, means that they grow into fearful people as adults as well. Um, but, of course, if you look at the actual crime data, the dangerous place for women is in yeah. their house at the hands of their partner. And those statistics are absolutely alarming and, and, and very, very scary. Another piece of your work, you um, you did a map um, called City Strolls, um, where you tracked three or watched and observed. Tracked, it's probably the wrong word to use in the, <laughs> this discussion. You observed three women as they walked to, or strolled through the city and you looked at what their behaviour was and what they were doing um, and, and then documented that. Can you talk, talk a little bit more about that work? Yeah, so I went on three slow walks. Um, I think it was Latrobe Street, Hosier Lane and... Um, another a major street, I think it just might have been Burke Street, and um, I, I illustrated the way that women were participating, engaging with the city at different points. Um, and the reason I did
did that project is as part of my research, I've done a lot of reading into the way we can plan cities um, better for women. And that actually, our gender is very rarely a consideration of city planners. And in fact, the research that I read seemed to suggest that that idea was met with actually quite a lot of hostility. Like, oh, you want me to think about the way I plan a city for a woman? Like, what next? <laughs> but, um, you know, women are 50% of the population, so it seems like they're a pretty important part to include in that discussion. But basically what the research um, kind of highlighted was that um, the way that the post-Second World War cities that we've constructed with, you know, the dominance of the suburbs, the large commutes into city areas, the zoning between commercial areas, schools, and then um, residential neighbourhoods is actually completely the wrong type of city mm. for women. And um, women tend not to have the same access to cars, so they are more likely to re rely on public transport and they need really strong, adequate and regular public transport. They also need totally mixed-use areas mm. where their work is beside the school, which is beside the nursing home, which is beside the home. And that's because women are still the primary carers for both aged relatives but also children. And, you know, they also need incredibly accessible cities because they tend to be the people pushing the prams um, or helping out with uh, less mobile elderly relatives. Um, so there was this particularly interesting bit of research out of the UN and it, it was only a, a, a little bit that I read and I'd, I'd love to flesh it out further and see if there's any more data on it that looked at Southeast Asian cities where the presence of women is actually far more dominant on the street because of the micro-economies. Mm. So, um, you know, the nail painter, the hair straightener, um, the food hawker, mm -hmm. um, the recycling is so often the small-scale businesses that are run by women. And the data seemed to suggest that the presence of these women on the street made other women feel really safe. But the key is not just the presence of any woman. Mm. It's, it's the presence of really diverse spectrum of women. Yeah. And I think one of the very alarming things about the drawings I, I did, and I was walking at different times of the days, was the lack of diversity in the ages of the women I captured. And, um, you know, I know that because the CBD is perhaps seen as an, an area for work, um, there isn't amazing amounts of childcare facilities, there isn't a primary school, there isn't a high school until you go to the fringes of the CBD. So you're not necessarily getting the same saturations of really young women mm. and for that token also elderly women within the CBD. Um, and of course we don't have those micro economies so we don't have women working at that, grace, uh, that ground level um, yeah. and being really, really present. Fantastic. From your artistic point of view and as, as the, you know, sort of one of our artists and one of the key artists in the exhibition, what do you think the, or hope the exhibition will achieve um, and what did you see through, because Claire was not just um, an artist in the exhibition, obviously you were in part of many of our conversations, our panel talks and our lunchtime talks, so you, know, you, you talk to a lot of people, what do you hope that this exhibition um, does for gender equality? Um, I feel like something's changing in the air and I, I feel like when I talked about um, gender equality even five years perhaps ten years ago it was often derided and met with um, a type of aggression um, which never stopped me talking about it <laughs> um, but What's been really refreshing about this exhibition is actually feeling like perhaps that's changing and perhaps there is actually a real interest in, in dealing, with, dealing with gender equality. Um, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> but I. And so I guess the most fantastic thing about 
being involved in this exhibition has been the many discussions I've got to have with the public. And we had a, um, a, a panel in the final week of the exhibition that was supported by Dan Bofeather, um, was the CEO? Of C- yes, the, well, the, no, the general manager of the Dumbo Feather. Yep, general, general manager yeah. of Dumbo Feather, the CEO of Plan International. That's the deputy CEO of Plan International. <laughs> and myself. Yep. And, and Kemi Nick Paville. And so it, it was this like really great discussion between very different women mm. um, who are all interested in gender dis- um gender equality and then we opened up to the audience who had some absolutely fantastic questions Um, and so you know the more we talk about this the more likely we start improving women's perception yeah and I think that's a very good point I think one of the interesting things about the panel discussion was that we had Claire as an artist but we had an activist being you know sort of I guess you can call her an activist the deputy CEO of Plan who was you know activating for change and then you we had a woman Kemi Nekvaville who is um, she runs an organization that that or business that that empowers women to feel better about themselves and through nutrition and their lives and and giving them the strength to move forward um, and and to embrace who they are uh, and then we had um, um, the interviewee or er show it's interviewer from Dumbo Feather is a great magazine that um, support um, businesses and people that are doing social good in their in their through their work um, and um, we had all of them having this fantastic discussion and coming at it from a very different angle. So they discussed gender equality from so many different angles. And then we had the audience discussing it from another angle. So it really did bring in but but they're all everyone had the same sort of outlook, didn't they? They in what they wanted to see that change and they wanted to see that that women feeling more empowered and, and to change those help to change those perceptions. Um, and help and look at the ways that we could do that. But they came at it from very different angles. So I think that's what made it really interesting. And, and what was noticeable is the audience was 50-50, you know. Yeah, It, it was right. men and women and, and, and men genuinely care about this issue as well and they're intrigued about how we can build better cities. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, that men are very much a part of this conversation. So. And, I mean, going back to the thing I said, I, I forgot to mention this, <laughs> where I was talking about the shifts in... Um, in people's ideas about gender equality, I've noticed in this, this current election campaign that every single yeah. senior minister is being asked if they're a feminist or not. And Maurice Corman looked like a silly person uh, last night on the 7.30 report where he refused to kind of say whether he was or not. And, I, I mean, that seems to me like a massive shift in, in kind of Australia's general... Um, belief in the fact that being a feminist and um, you know yeah. worrying about gender equality is actually a really important thing, and it's it's really heartening to see on the back of this research that is you know demonstrating that women, because they don't feel a part of a city, are actually limiting their mobility, yeah, removing themselves from the conversation. Exactly. Um, so tell me, Claire, how did your studies at RMIT prepare you for this project? Um, so I did uh, Master's Art and Public Space just before Kim at RMIT. And, um, it, you know, as Kim said, it prepares you in mer- many different ways. But I think perhaps the strongest part of that course for me was the industry engagement component. And, um, you know, it, it's what RMIT really excels at, mm-hmm. giving you um, real 
opportunities um, with real clients that then go on to actually be your clients. And I mean, being an artist is really like running a small business. So the people that you meet in the course because perhaps they were doing the course with you or because you had projects with them became a really invaluable resource as I, as I built up my little artist um, you know, small business as I went along. Um, and then uh, I I've then went on to lecture in that course um, in art and public space for the last couple of years, um, particularly in the, the an elective run by the, uh, which um, undergraduates doing Bachelor of Fine Arts can do. And, you know, I find that absolutely heartening because every 12 months I get to meet 50 of our new and upcoming wonderful artists and I get to introduce them to creating site-specific places for industry partners um, and it's really exciting to see how um, the current generation is shifting their practices to work outside the gallery. Um, and now I've come back to do my PhD, so I'm, I'm back at RMIT. <laughs> fully immersed. Yeah, fully immersed. <laughs> so Claire, you're doing a PhD and your PhD is focused on mobility yeah. in our city spaces. Um, yeah, so kind of. Um, so I'm doing the PhD through um, fine arts, and um, I'm looking. Oh, well, I'm I'm working with um, the sociologist John Urie's um, book Mobilities, which talks about um, the mobilities paradigm, which is this idea that um, mobility is what links all aspects of society at this point in time. That we are at this incredible point in time where we are absolutely mobile and with new technologies that will increase from mobile phones through to the current uh, MBN, if it ever makes it to my suburb, uh, <laughs> being installed, installed in Melbourne CBD. Um, so I'm going on three journeys, which are actually um, family history narratives. Um, so one is a 19th century form of mobility. I'll be catching a container ship from Australia to Japan and mapping my great-grandma's journey to Japan. She was the first, well, we think she was the first Australian woman to enter Japan after the borders were opened to the West. Wow. Um, then the second journey is driving from um, Melbourne to um, my country town where I grew up called Myrtleford. And, um, you know, driving is the great... Um, form of mobility of the 20th century. It absolutely changed the, the way we, uh, we build our cities, shifted our perception of time and space. Mm -hmm. And um, that particular narrative is exploring um, uh, a giant snowman that was going to be constructed in Myrtleford uh, because, you know, as part of those giant road networks that were built post the Second World War, this great anxiety was built in rural um, Victoria. So and the giant, giant pineapple. Just like the, the, <laughs> just like the giant pineapple. So suddenly country towns you know, were being bypassed by freeways. They were no longer destinations and they had this huge anxiety about how they could pull people in and with that tourist dollars. And, and that was manifest in my town in the desire to build a giant snowman because we're in the foothills of the Australian Alps. Um, and, and this snowman was going to be like 70 metres high. It was going to be huge. And, it's, you, you know, we're talking about a beautiful, tiny country town and it was going to block the town's best aspect, which is this incredible face of Mount Buffalo National Park. And so my father took, um, took it all the way to VCAT with another, another very brave local. And, um, you know, there was a very vicious fight in the local newspaper. There were, there were um, prank phone calls. There was all sorts of things. But, you know, my memory of it is fronting up to primary school. And Gee, being, I bet they thank them these days. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure they thank them now. But my first nickname was Snowman Killer. So... <laughs> So that, you know, that the second project is doing that drive and exploring that narrative and that anxiety of rural, um, 
rural Victoria, but also rural Australia in general. And then the final um, journey is still being framed and that will be some kind of 21st century mobility, perhaps in my pyjamas from home because, you know, current mobilities are kind of immobile mobilities. I get Yeah, who knows? Across the world and, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so I guess uh, with all of these, I'm I'm looking at the uniqueness of Australia's position within all of these forms of mobility, which is quite unique as a... You know, 19th century, um, 1900s um, colony, and then 21st century um, vast land hugging to the east coast. So we're, so you know, we have quite a different position to many other places in the world. Um, so I guess the the place that the three o'clock exhibition and Plan International's data fitted yeah. into this is I'm really aware that if mobility is the thing that links us all, if yeah. if it is the current paradigm. Um, if we want to be great participants in the 21st century, then we need to be able to be mobile. So and that means women, everybody needs to be mobile. That's right. So if women are limiting their mobility because of their perception of safety, and actually this is the case online as much as it is mm-hmm, um, right. in the streets, uh, well, then we're limiting our participation in the 21st century. And our, our participation in the previous century was forcefully limited let's not um, limit our participation in the current one that's right and, and women are a great indicator of course obviously of the elderly and of the young that's um, right in terms of mobility so if we make our cities more accessible for women then we make them more accessible for the elderly and for the young yeah and a lot of the stuff you read about planning um, cities for women says exactly that if you plan a city for an um, and the elderly chances are you're vastly improving it for women as well 